This morning's scripture reading will be taken from Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Then the man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. you pray with me? Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are the one who holds us fast. We confess this week over and over again the times where our love grew cold. We were prone to wander. The ways in which we rebelled against you and thought I would rather have the things you have made rather than you, Lord, we confess those to you. And we thank you that you are the one who holds us fast. We thank you for the love that you have shown us through your son, Jesus. And I pray this morning as we look at him through your word, Lord, I pray that we would be captivated by his beauty, that we would be drawn deeper and deeper into loving him. I ask that you would show us these things through your word, conform us to the image of your son through your word. And we will give you the praise and the glory. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. John Piper writes that there has never been a generation whose general view of marriage is high enough. The chasm between the biblical vision of marriage and the common human vision is now and has always been gargantuan. Some cultures in history respect the importance and permanence of marriage more than others. Some, like our own, have such low, casual, take-it-or-leave-it attitudes toward marriage as to make the biblical vision seem ludicrous to most people. Now, if he is right, and I believe that he is, it means that none of us in this room, not a single one of us, has a high enough view of marriage. Now, you may love marriage as the highest good that you have ever attained in life, or you may despise marriage as something that you will never embrace, but either way, your view of marriage is too low. See, we have redefined who marriage can be between. It's no longer just between a man and a woman. We have belittled marriage as relationships and sex need no longer be bound by this covenant bond, and we have misunderstood marriage by making it the vehicle to our own self-fulfillment and happiness rather than the giving of ourselves to another person. Our view of marriage is way too small. And it will remain that way until we have come to understand God's true design for it. Now, we often refer to marriage as a mystery. This This is a mystery But it's a mystery that has been revealed. It's a mystery that has been made known to us. It has been uncovered. The curtain has been pulled back. So think about the the last mystery story that you read or watched on TV or something, and and think about how it probably followed a, a, a similar pattern. 
I think of, for example, the TV show Psych, which every episode is basically the same way. And I don't mean that in a, in a negative way, but basically what happens is the beginning starts with a crime. Something has, has gone wrong. And so the bulk of the episode then is the detectives having to solve the crime and figure out what happened, what went wrong. And then by the end of the episode, they've figured it out. So they, they do the grand unveiling and they make it known. Here's what happened. Here's who did it. But you know what doesn't happen at the end of the episode? At the end of the episode, you know, there's, not, there's not someone saying, well, I guess we'll never be able to figure this one out. It'll forever be a mystery. Because they've just figured it out. And so when we say that, the, that marriage is a mystery, we must be careful to define what we mean by it. It is not a mystery such that you could never figure out. Some, some of you here, you're married, and you say amen to that one, that you, you know, it's, it seems mysterious to me. But this is a mystery that has been revealed. It's been made known. The curtain has been pulled back. God has told us exactly what the mystery of marriage actually is. And that behind marriage, when you peel back the curtain, there is the marvelous plan of God to redeem his people through his son, Jesus. So our study of the book of Genesis takes us to the end of chapter two. If you're not already there, I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. In the pew Bible in front of you, it's on page number two. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to have that one as our gift to you. Genesis chapter two. We see this is right on the precipice of everything going wrong. We are right on the brink of chapter three where God's creation is plunged into chaos because of man's rebellion against him, sin. But what we have been looking at leading up to that, which we'll get to the fall next week, but what we are looking at is how God designed things to be, how he made it to be the way it's supposed to be. We see that here in Genesis chapter two pertaining to marriage. And insofar as I am faithful to the text this morning, and we trust that God's word is profitable for all of us, then there is something here for every single one of us, married or not. Some of you right now are quietly groaning about a sermon on marriage. Maybe some of you are quietly weeping about it because of the life that you wish you had. And so it seems appropriate for us to begin here with this, that marriage is good. It's good. It is created good by God. And this, this picks up on one of the common refrains that runs throughout the entirety of Genesis chapter one. There, there's, there's a number of similar themes that keep coming up in Genesis chapter one. And one of them is this. We see it in verse 10 of chapter one. And God saw that it was good. Verse 12, and God saw that it was good. Verse 18, and God saw that it was good. Verse 21, and God saw that it was good. Verse 25, and God saw that it was good. And verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. It's a good creation that God has made. Punctuating the entire creation narrative of chapter one is the common refrain, and it was good. But then we come to chapter two, verse 18, and look at it. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. So the God who has pronounced everything good now is telling us there's something that is not good. Which tells us something important. And before we get there, we should not skip over another reality. And it's this, the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, is making it clear that part of what it means for God to be God is for him to declare what is good and for him to declare what is not good. That is a right given to God and God alone. God declares what is good. God declares what is evil. And you and I want that right for ourselves. Eve, in chapter 3, she takes the fruit. She saw that it was good, and then she ate. All of us want to redefine what is really good. All of us want to redefine morality to fit our picture. But the Bible is telling us that God has that right, and we do not. When God says that something is good, it is good. When God says that something is not good, it is not good. All of us have a high view of goodness. We want to do what is right and good, but we think we should be the ones who should determine what that is. Let's apply that in this particular instance to marriage. Because the real question being debated today is about the Bible's definition of marriage is about whether it is actually good. We think surely a man and a man coming together in marriage as long as they are happy must be a good thing. And surely then someone who insists that that marriage is not a good thing must be evil. We have taken it upon ourselves to redefine what is good and what is evil, whereas the Bible says God has that right. 
The book of Judges has a familiar refrain that runs throughout. It says this, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel wasn't always just intending to rebel against God. They thought, we're going to do what is good. We're going to do what is right. But they thought they were the best judge of that. That I'm going to do this because this is what's going to be best for me. And doesn't that sound a whole lot like the common ideal of our age? I'm going to do what is good and right for me because I'm going to be the determiner of that. But what our culture then extols as the height of morality, the Bible actually condemns as the depths of depravity to call what is good evil or what is evil good. God has that right, and we do not. God declares his creation good, and he has every right to do so, and is totally correct in his judgment. And when God declares something here in verse 18 not good, he is totally right to do so, and he is totally correct in his judgment. So something is not good. And what is it? It's not good that the man should be alone. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. I think it bears repeating here. Notice that it is God who first sees Adam's need, not Adam. I don't see anything in the text to suggest to us that Adam was the one who was first aware of his loneliness. Adam didn't even know, he didn't even have it in his mind of what another human being would be like, what another relationship with them would be like. Adam didn't know that he was lonely, but God knew. God knew exactly what Adam needed and God acted upon it. God knows exactly what you need as well and he will act upon it. You can bring to him those needs that you have. You can bring to him those longings of your soul. You can bring to him those desires that you hold deep in your heart and trust him with those because you know that he will give you everything you need. But that doesn't mean he's gonna take your advice on everything you need. Part of this requires God, trusting God that he knows best. So that when he has not given you something, it is not because he has forgotten you. It is not because he has overlooked you. It is not because he doesn't care about you. It's because he knows better than even we do what we need. And he is right in what he says and sees. When he says something is good, it is good. When he says it is not good, it is not good. And so to address this not in goodness of man's loneliness, God creates woman. But again, we should pause, and now you're wondering if we're ever even going to make it through our text, if we're pausing at every phrase in verse 18. But I am confident that some of you this morning are struggling with this verse. And you are struggling with this verse precisely because you do believe what it says, not because you don't. Sometimes there can be a greater struggle with the text because we do believe it than when we don't. See, this, this verse, it is not good that the man should be alone. There really wouldn't be a struggle with it if you didn't believe that was true. Because maybe you're lonely right now. You're feeling lonely. And, and if you didn't believe that was true, you said, well, no, actually, it's good that we should be alone. Then you wouldn't have a problem with what it's saying. But if right now you're lonely and you believe that and it's not good for man to be alone, you've got some issues. So you might assume that God is holding something back from you that you really need or that is good. So you, you might say, God is intentionally leaving me in this space of not goodness right now. I'm not married. I don't have this relationship. I, I feel lonely. Wherever you find yourself, you might feel like God has intentionally left you in the not goodness of life. Some of you might be single having never been married and are longing for that. Others of you might be single again, whether from divorce or from death. And you're struggling with this verse. So what does it mean that it is not good for the man to be alone? Well, we gotta take it at face value. It is not good for man to be alone. We're not created to be alone. We're not made to do this by ourselves. And every single human being, from the most reserved of introverts to the most expressive of extroverts, longs for this kind of community and this kind of belonging for our souls. And yet ours is a day of rampant loneliness of epidemic proportions. Studies repeatedly show that people today are lonelier than ever and that the younger generations are the loneliest generations ever studied. And you know, two plus years of lockdowns and social distancing did not create this, but it certainly didn't help things either. So surely every one of us agrees it's not good for man to be alone. 
And God creates woman here as a companion to man to address this very need. It tells us marriage is designed in some particular way, in some uh, special way to address the loneliness that man feels by himself. It's It's a unique way, a deeper way to get at this problem. But I do think we do a disservice to God's created design and to those around us in the church if we view this as only happening through marital lenses. Because the church also is a family. We relate to one another as our Family. The Bible says God sets the lonely in families, and he does so nowhere more ultimately than in the church. And the more that the church operates as a series of somewhat interconnected nuclear families rather than a brand new family altogether, the more that we as a church will be ill-equipped to actually address the loneliness epidemic of our day and those around us. We are individualistic to the core with everything revolving around ourselves, whereas the Bible holds up a picture of community and says, this is what you should long for. The church is our family. And so I say to you, friends, that if there is someone among us who is lonely, it is not a them problem, it is an us problem. Do you feel responsibility when your grandmother is lonely to do something about it? Do you feel the same responsibility when someone here in our Spiritual family is lonely to do something about it. The church is the family that can help this not goodness of being alone. So we shouldn't view this as being exclusively through marital lenses, but nonetheless, that hopefully helpful excursion aside, the specific application to this problem that God presents to us in our text is marriage. So we must not see marriage as the sole or ultimate way in which this longing, this loneliness is met, but it nonetheless is a God-given and good way of where that can happen, a deeper way, an ultimate way. But we see that God actually wants Adam to notice this for himself first. That's where we pick it up in verse 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. See, Adam, as the vice regent ruling over all that God had made, is given the right to name the animals. This this right of naming is, is a symbol of his authority over them. And notice the creativity of Adam on display. I mean, I don't know if you're like me, but if you bring one animal in front of me, I'm gonna just kind of freeze up and not know what to call it. And Adam's just animal after animal after animal, one after another, coming up with its name that fits its kind. So he's like, well, you're an anteater, and you're a lion, and you're an orangutan, and you're a zebra, and you're a spider, although spiders didn't exist until after the fall. I don't know if you knew that or not. But we see Adam naming all the animals. And the animals actually do have some things in common with Adam. Verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. It's the same way Adam was made. Verse seven, the Lord God had formed the man of dust from the ground. Both Adam and the animals come from the ground. Verse 19 also says the animals are called living creatures. Same thing Adam's called in verse seven. So Adam and the animals do have some things in common. They are living creatures brought forth from the ground, and yet there is no animal who is found to be a helper fit for Adam. There's none like him. The woman in this passage in both verse 18 and verse 20 is described as helper. Now, we should not view that as denoting any sort of inferiority to man. And the reason we know that is not only because in chapter one, both man and woman created in God's image, but also because elsewhere throughout scripture, God himself is referred to as the helper of his people, the helper of Israel. So like we would not say that God is inferior to his people, we must not say that woman is inferior to man. So this is not a a reference to worth whatsoever. But neither should we use that truth to erase any sort of distinction or authority in this. We should not read this as erasing or ignoring any act of submission and authority in the text. In fact, I think there are several indicators of the husband's headship of his wife that we see right here. First, Adam was made before Eve, and there's an order to this that the New Testament picks up on, the created order. Second, Eve is made as a helper suitable for Adam and not vice versa. Third, Eve is described in these verses as being made from Adam and for Adam. 
Fourth, Adam is the one who names Eve, which we just looked at with the naming of the animals. And fifth, Paul actually uses this created order rooted here in Genesis 1 and 2 to teach on roles for men and women in the church. So we should not see this as, uh, as referring to any sort of inferiority, nor should we see this as erasing any sort of distinction between them. So I think with the word helper, then, we should rightly understand it as referring to woman helping man do what he could not do without her. I think that's a faithful interpretation when it comes to God, too. God, as the helper of his people, helps us do what we could not do without him. And woman, as the helper to man, helps us do what we could not do without her. You say, how, how, how does she help? Well, in many different ways, and you could attest to that, but right here in the text, I think specifically with fulfilling the creation mandate of caring for the creation and being fruitful and multiplying and spreading uh, God's fame and glory among the earth. So what God does after seeing Adam's need and making Eve, or is making, is, is making Eve, verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. When the Bible describes this deep sleep, it is of God's doing, brought about for God's purposes. It is noteworthy that the woman gets her own creation story as well. In ancient cultures, that would have seemed a little odd. The man got his story. Why does the woman need hers? So notice that the Bible validates the creation of a woman by giving us the, the story of how she was made. What happens is that uh, there are differences. Adam is made from the ground and Eve is made from Adam. A part of Adam is taken from him to make Eve. And I don't think we should read too much into this physically more than is actually really there, but it does highlight how the man and the woman then coming together again after that is a reunion because a part of Adam was given to Eve and in coming together, they are once more one flesh. So God brings Eve to Adam. God has already brought all the animals before Adam and now he brings Eve like a father walking his, his daughter down the aisle to her husband. So God brings Eve to Adam. And you say, how will Adam respond now? Verse 23, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. That phrase, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh is really something like my own blood relative, my own flesh and blood. This at last is someone who is like me, someone who is made like me. Adam wakes up from his slumber. He sees Eve in front of him. His, arms, his eyes light up. Because he sees this is not just any animal that's come before me. This is a woman who is just like me. Husbands, do you talk about your wife like that? Notice that when Adam sees Eve, he is effusive in his praise for her. And his delight overflows into what he says. When was the last time that you went out of your way to delight in your wife by praising her with your words? When was the last time that you used your words to praise your wife around other people? Proverbs 18 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Psalm 141 exclaims, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Ephesians 4 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Don't be the kind of person or the kind of spouse who goes around talking bad about your husband or your wife. Don't be the kind of spouse who assumes, well, she knows that I love her. Tell her. Use your word to celebrate her. Affirm her. When Adam sees Eve, he delights in her, celebrates her, and praises her with his words. And these are actually the first thing, the first words we ever hear the man say. Thus far in the narrative, it has been entirely God acting and entirely God speaking. The man has done nothing to this point. Uh, it was, it's always been God. But now we see Adam actually talks. And what are his first words recorded for us in Scripture? celebrating his wife, Eve. This is a contrast to what will come in chapter three. Chapter three, after the fall into sin, God confronts Adam about their sin. Here's what Adam says. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. 
So he blames his wife, Eve, that woman, and he blames God, the woman whom you gave to me. So there's an interesting contrast here. The first time that we hear man speak, it is in praise over his wife. The second time that we hear man speak, it is as he tries to blame his wife for his sin. Which means that the fall has corrupted the way that we think about others, the way that we relate to others, and the way that we talk about others. Are you going to use your words, particularly your words about and to your spouse, in a way that is self-giving or a way that is self-centered? Are you going to use your words to celebrate or to condemn? Husbands, make sure that your wife hears you praising her, celebrating her, and delighting in her. And wives, make sure that your husbands hear the same. We see that marriage is a good thing created by God. It's his design. It's good because it's intended to help us address the loneliness that Adam experienced and that we all experience as well. It's good because it's the way in which the creation mandate God has given to them will be carried out. It's good because Eve is the perfect complement to Adam just as woman is to man. But it is also good ultimately because it is God's design. It's the way he made it to be. And this is the God who is doing all things, orchestrating all things. We see here in chapters one and two. God is the one doing all of it. God makes Adam. God makes Eden. God places Adam in Eden. God gives Adam the creation mandate and the covenant with Adam. God sees that it is not good that Adam is alone. God makes woman to address that, and God gives the woman to the man. It is all God's doing. It's all his design. It's a good design by a good God. And you say, what is his design for this? We see that in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This verse is really the pillar upon which the entire biblical teaching about marriage is built. This verse is quoted repeatedly throughout the Bible, including in the New Testament. Four times in the New Testament, four different books in the New Testament, I should say, is this verse quoted to teach us something about marriage, the way we are to relate to one another there. This is the pillar upon which it's built. In fact, I think this text in Genesis 2 is one of two foundational pillars around which all else with marriage in Scripture is built. We'll get to the other one in just a bit. But I think we should understand God's design for marriage seen here in this verse. I think we see at least three truths about marriage that we should observe. First is that marriage brings a new priority to our lives. It brings a new priority Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, a lot of us, we are probably tempted to say, well, duh, because that's the way we've just been brought about to think. But we should remember that this passage was not written to our context and our culture. It was written to a different cult, context and culture in which honoring one's parents was about as big of a deal as you could possibly imagine. It was uh, next to honoring God. We've done, done away with a lot of this. Of all the cultures in world history, ours appears among the most individualistic of them. We don't have as strong of connections to the extended family because it's all about our nuclear family, meaning mom and dad and, and children and all that, right? we, we, we've kind of consolidated a little bit, both in terms of our relational connection to them and also our geographic proximity to them. But also in our day and age, we seem to have less of a regard, less of a respect for the elderly and what they say and think and more of a fascination with youth. And so because of that, it's harder for us to understand how the original audience would have read this verse. Because they would have thought, honoring your father and your mother is the biggest thing in my life. And this says, no, don't, it's not intending to denigrate one's parents. It's not saying belittle them. It's not saying don't honor them. It is saying you should have a higher priority even than that. That should be honoring and loving your spouse. They would have still lived very close to their parents in that day. They would have still lived uh, around their extended family. But the priorities now have changed. The husband's top human relationship in terms of his priorities was to be to his wife, and that's God's design for how it is supposed to happen. So where are your priorities at in your marriage? Are you prioritizing the right thing? Is, is your spouse your top priority even over a night out partying with your friends? Does honoring your spouse mean more to you than honoring even your parents? 
Does it actually feel like your priorities have changed upon getting married, or has it simply been two people with their own priorities coming together and trying to work it out? God's design for marriage is that it takes the priority over all other human relationships, including your parents. It's not an excuse to, ex- to dismiss others or to ignore others. It's not an excuse to never engage with others. And it certainly is not an excuse to dishonor your parents. After this text is given, we see the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and your mother. It's not an excuse to not do that. But it is saying that your priority has changed. This is a command to love your spouse and to honor and value them above all other human relationships that you have. And you think many a marriage has struggled on this very point. Marriage is a new priority, but it is also a lasting commitment. It is a lasting commitment. It says, a man shall hold fast to his wife. Now that that term hold fast can mean to cling to or to stick to or really to be glued to. A man shall stick with his wife. That same word, hold fast, is used elsewhere in Scripture quite a bit, actually, to refer to our relationship with God. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 10, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. So what is at play here is the language of covenant. It's the deepest commitment any one of us can make. It's a binding agreement in which we pledge to do something and to follow through on it. And marriage actually represents the closest thing we have to this in our day and age, and yet marriage is nonetheless a faulty picture because marriage is a covenant frequently broken today. We have come to define love as nothing more than a feeling. So when I'm not feeling in love anymore, I owe it to myself to find that love somewhere else, to go running for the happiness somewhere else. But it is more accurate, biblically speaking, to view love not as a feeling, but as a commitment. Love is a commitment that says, even when I am not feeling like it, I'm going to choose to love you. You know, this is the same thing we do about God. This same word, hold fast, is used to describe our relationship with God, too. A faith that is based only on feelings will never hold sway against the difficulties of life. If we make our faith all about how we feel, and if we determine our worship, particularly our musical worship, based purely on our feelings of it and how we experience that, then what happens when you're not feeling like it? Because that will happen. There will be times where you don't feel like it. And if we base it all on our feelings and we assume, well, I just can't worship then. But a more biblical view is one that says, Lord, even when I don't feel it, I'm gonna love you and follow you, and worship you. We're just saying, for my love is often cold, he must hold me fast. The same thing goes for marriage. If it is based purely on a feeling, then what happens when that feeling goes away? What happens when the passion cools down? It happens to every married couple who have been married long enough. What happens then? And the solution that many people today will tell you is, well, you owe it to yourself to go find what makes you happy somewhere else. To pursue that other relationship. To go sleep around with someone else. Whatever is going to make you happy. But that's not the Bible's picture. Jesus actually quotes this verse in both Matthew and Mark to teach why divorce is forbidden. He quotes this verse and then says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus is saying that marriage is a lasting commitment between a husband and a wife that is not to be broken. And so you come in and you say, well, I just feel stuck in this marriage. Maybe what someone needs to respond in love to you is that the Bible actually says you should stick with it and you should be stuck in it. He said, Josh, you don't understand. This is really hard. It seems like keep, things just keep on getting worse. And for many of you, you committed to that for better or for worse. Love is a commitment that is not to be broken. It's a lasting commitment. It says, I pledge myself to love you for better or for worse. No matter what comes, I'm gonna keep going. It's the same thing we do with God. When the hardships come, when the sufferings come, we say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep going, God. And when the hardships come and the difficulties come in marriage, we say, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to hold fast to you. I'm going to stick with you. And that's because marriage is an intimate union. It's the third truth we see about this. It's an intimate union. Because the final phrase of this verse is, and they shall become one flesh. 
Again, this verse is quoted in the New Testament. Jesus quotes it in Matthew and Mark, and Paul quotes it in 1 Corinthians 6 as an exhortation against sexual immorality. He writes, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So this one flesh union is certainly not less than sexual intimacy, and that's why Paul commands not to sleep around. So we should again apply this to marriages. When you sleep with someone else, or when you look at that pornography on the computer, or when you engage in any sort of sexual activity or pleasure outside of the marital relationship, you are breaking the covenant that you have made to your spouse, and you are paying complete disregard and dishonor to the truth of marriage that God has designed. Marriage between one man and one woman is the only place where sexual activity occurs according to God's design. And so really, when you go outside of this bond to make love with someone else, you are really making war on God. There's a oneness here, a union that goes deeper than any other human relationship. There's a deep intimacy, and I think that's the picture given to us in verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now we see in chapter three, guilt and shame coming into the picture now because of our sin, but that's not the way God designed it for, to be naked and unashamed. So you don't exist for yourself, and yet self-centeredness is at the root of so much destruction in marriage, just like it is everywhere else. Jim Boyce wrote that what is wrong with marriages today, in my opinion, is the love of self that our culture encourages. We put ourselves first. Consequently, if the other person does not contribute to my sense of well-being or serve my goals and bolster my ego, I am ready to dissolve the relationship. Now he's right, but that's nothing new. It's always been the case. Ego, pride, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, self-centeredness, all of these things have always been obstacles in marriage and in any other context. And so instead of giving, we approach marriage in a consumeristic terms. What can you give to me instead of what can I give to you? Don't, don't have it in your mind, any sort of grand ideas or false notions about marriage that's supposed to be easy. We live this side of the fall, and marriage is not easy. It brings a lot of joy and comfort, yes, but it also brings a lot of toil and work. So that's why this picture is important. It causes you to prioritize your spouse over others, and it causes you to, to make a commitment to say, I'm going to stick with you. And in doing so, becoming one flesh and growing in this oneness with each other. But this idea of nakedness, I think, goes even deeper than that. Because, yes, they were actually physically naked, but that's not why this is such a big point in the text. It's not telling you that the way to have Eden restored is to run around naked. It's not saying that. It's not telling you, go get naked. It's telling you why we now need to be clothed. It's explaining for us what has happened. And the reason I'm confident in that is because of what chapter 3 says. I think actually verse 25 probably goes just as much with the verses that follow it as the verses that precede it. Because verse 25, chapter two, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Chapter three, verse seven, right after the fall into sin, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths. God's creation design in the garden, they were naked and not ashamed. What happens after their sin? They realize their nakedness and in shame covered themselves. There's a spiritual dimension at play. Yes, it's describing the intimacy shared between the husband and the wife before sin entered into the picture. Yes. Yes, it is preparing us for the devastating consequences of sin that are to come. But it is also showing us what it is like to live with innocent trust in God and in his word. Adam and Eve were content to trust God, and so they live without shame and complete openness before him and one another. And yet when they rebel against him, they hide, run away, and think, don't look at me. There's a spiritual reality here. And it shouldn't surprise us because behind the picture, behind the scenes of everything we've been looking at, there is a greater spiritual reality. And it is actually the main point of marriage. This is the mystery that's been revealed to us. And I know that's a big claim to say this is the main point about marriage, but I think we can back it up from Scripture. Because I said, this is one of two pillar texts in Scripture about marriage. The other one is Ephesians chapter 5, which also quotes this. 
It's interesting. Genesis, written by Moses, a married man. Ephesians, written by Paul, a single man. And in Ephesians, Paul quotes this passage and says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, that's what we just read. Then he says, This mystery is profound. And everyone who's married says, Amen. And then Paul says this, And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul says, you want to know what the, the, the mystery of marriage actually is? It's pointing to Christ. You want to peel back the curtain on what marriage is all about? It's about Christ and his love for his people. Yes, marriage is good, and it is God's good design to be enjoyed by his people, but marriage is ultimately for God's glory, that he would be made great among the nations. Sometimes we view this passage like we would go to illustrate something else. We say, um, we we think it goes something like this. Um, God creates marriage, and then sometime down the road, God comes into thinking, hey, you know what? I need something to to illustrate my love for my people. What, kind of looking around, what what can I think of that would do that? Oh, I guess marriage does a pretty good job at it. It's actually the other way around. Eternity passed. God the Father gave to his son a people. And the son in love for his people. And God creates the world. And when God creates the world, he says, what can I make that will show them a picture of my love for them? I'm gonna make marriage. It's been his design all along. See, how does that work? This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter five. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish." In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother to hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. See why it's so important to keep this straight? If we start confusing marriage as not necessarily needing to be between a man or a woman, if we start missing the distinctions between men and women altogether in marriage, we have come to totally dilute the picture of the gospel that God gives us in his creation. When we redefine the picture of marriage, we are actually defacing the portrait of redemption that the creator God has given to us to show us his love. Like a graffiti artist goes and paints over a Van Gogh masterpiece thinking, I'm gonna make this better. And Paul pulls back the curtain on marriage and he says, let me tell you what this is really about. You remember in the old Scooby-Doo cartoons, the end of every episode, it was always, you know, the, the villain always had this mask on. And at the end of every episode, they're like, let's, let's pull off the mask and see who's really behind this. And what Paul is doing here is saying, let's pull off the mask and see what's really behind marriage. Let's see what's really behind this thing. And behind that curtain, behind that mask, is the love of Christ for his people. The way that Jesus loves his church is by giving himself for us. He cares for his body, the church, his people. And he died for us and is making his body pure and perfect to be presented to him as the great bride, pure and spotless one day. And every single one who believes in Christ and trusts in him as Lord and Savior will be loved by him for all of eternity. Presented to the great bride Christ at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And just as no one rejects their own flesh, the text tells us, neither will Jesus reject you. He will not reject any who come to him, but will hold them fast because they are members of his beloved bride. 
We come to him naked and in shame because of our sin, our rebellion against him, and we come to be clothed in his righteousness, dressed pure and spotless and shameless in him, like we were in Eden, but no longer naked, but instead clothed in Christ and his glory and his splendor and his perfection. And his bride was purchased for him through his wounds. That he died to purchase for himself a people that he would love because of his love for them. His bride came through his wounds. In the Garden of Eden, God opens up Adam's side and from that brings forth a bride. And years later, the second Adam hanging on the cross, his side too is pierced. And from his wounds comes his bride, the church. And he is the one whom all of us were created for, the one all of us were created to love. Some of you might be familiar with the TV series, The Good Place. It's a a fictional account of uh, the afterlife. And it is certainly not theologically, biblically accurate. I'll say that up front. But it is an interesting and thought-provoking series, both psychologically and sociologically, about the human condition. And toward the end of the series, uh, some of the characters get a chance to sort of uh, create their own ideal afterlife, their own ideal heaven. And so they create this world of delight in which they, they and their soulmate will live forever in joy. But one thing the show perceptively picks up on is this. Over time, they grow bored with that. They grow bored with their soulmate and start thinking, actually, you know what? Ceasing to exist would sound a little bit better than that. And in that, I think the show actually taps into a profound idea about human nature is that we were never meant to be captivated solely, ultimately, by one another. Even the best of relationships, even the soulmate in the perfect afterlife can't sustain that forever. You look at how marriage, you know, 20 years of marriage, and you say, well, that can't bear the weight of my longings and my expectations and making me happy and satisfying every longing of my heart. That can't do that. There's only one who can is Christ. The best of human relationships will grow cold. The best of human relationships will not be able to hold sway forever. The best of human relationships will grow to some degree boring if you give it enough time. But with Christ, there will be an eternity of us delighting in his love, us being loved by him and him showing us the riches of his glory. And at the end of an eternity, will say, we're no closer to the end of this than we are at the beginning. That's the love of Christ for his people. He's the one we are made for. And only he can truly satisfy and captivate our souls. And so as I close, I want to speak directly to two different groups of people. First, I want to speak to those of you who are not married. Because a sermon on marriage can be hard. Because maybe you wish this is where you were or because you've had a bad experience with it, or because you missed your spouse who has left or passed away. But for you, I want you to, to, to know that marriage is but a picture of the ultimate reality, and you will not miss out on that if you are in Christ. That married or single here, you will not miss out on the love of Christ for his people. You may be married or you may never be, but if you belong to Christ, you will never miss out on the things that really matter. All human marriage pales in comparison to that love. So rather than spending your days in shame or in self-pity over your lack of a spouse, allow it to point you all the more to Christ. As someone has said, marriage shows us the picture of the gospel while singleness shows us the sufficiency of the gospel, that Christ is enough. A few years back, I had a chance to go to Israel. And uh, if I were to show you right now a picture of me floating in the Dead Sea in Israel and then say, hey, you can have that picture, or I can give you an all-expenses-paid trip to go float in the Dead Sea yourself. Which one would you take? And I know some of you hate to travel, so you're like, just give me the picture and be done with it, and you're ruining my illustration, okay? But no one would really take the picture over the actual thing. And the Bible comes along and says, marriage is a picture of the greater reality, Christ's love for his church, and you will never miss out on this. If you belong to Christ and believe in him as your Lord and Savior, you will never miss out on this. So whether you're married here or not, you're not missing out on the real thing. 
trust him in that. Marriage is a good thing, and the desire to be married is a good thing, but don't let that keep you from embracing Christ as all-sufficient for your souls right now. Now, to those of you who are married, seeing these truths from Genesis chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 5 raises the stakes on the way that you love your spouse because it says that you are now representing to the world around you that is watching the picture of redemption of how Christ loves his church and how his church loves Christ. It's reflected in the way that you prioritize your marriage. It should reflect the even deeper reality, the even deeper priority that Christ is all and is your greatest good. It should be reflected in the way that you stick with one another. It reflects to the way that we stick with Christ and hold fast to him, and he really holds fast to us. And this is reflected in the way that you are one with each other, as Christ and his church are one. And so take note of the text in Ephesians that says, let each one of you love his wife as yourself. Husbands, that pertains to you. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Wives, that pertains to you. Husbands, love your wife with a self-sacrificing love that looks out for her interest before your own. And this way, you reflect the Lord Christ. And wives, respect your husband as he rightly respects Christ. For in this way, you reflect the church. And in all of this, you have the great privilege of not only being caught up in the greatest love story that's ever been told of Christ and his people, but you also have the privilege of making it known to a watching world of the God who loves his people. See, the world is longing for this, the loneliness epidemic and the, the longing for some sort, of, some sort of love, some sort of significance, some sort of satisfaction, something to, to complete us and make us happy. And we have the message that God has painted the picture all over his creation of the story of redemption, of the love that Jesus Christ has eternally had for his people and will have forevermore and hold us fast. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us shown in Christ. That though we don't deserve it, you choose to love us anyway and bring us to yourself and make us one with your son. I pray that you would cause us to love him in deeper ways and to be captivated by him more and more and for that love to flow out into the way we love others around us. And we think particularly this morning the way that husbands and wives love each other. Lord, I pray you would do these things. I pray as we read earlier in the service from Ephesians chapter three that we would understand with all the saints together in deeper and deeper ways what is the height and the depth and the length and the width of the love of God that surpasses all understanding. But Lord, I pray you would cause us to understand it deeper and deeper each day of our lives and each day of eternity as we cling to you and all the while realize you are the one who clings to us. So we thank you and we love you. And we pray that all glory, both in our lives and in the church, be to the Lord Christ Jesus. Amen.